I was in Frankfurt, Germany, and I didn't know anybody for a few thousand miles away. I was all by my lonesome. And there's a river that runs through the center of town. It's called the Mine. It's pronounced Mine, but spelled Main, and that didn't make a lick of sense to me. But that's not the story. I'm sitting on this bench next to the river. It's just a beautiful, beautiful spring day. And I'm sitting there eating my lunch of bread and cheese without a care in the world. And this girl comes walking up around my left-hand side and starts speaking to me in German. And I don't speak German, so I'm trying to figure out what she's saying to me. And about that same time, this other guy comes walking up around my right-hand side. And he's got one of those really big, newfangled TV cameras pointed right in my face. And it turns out they work for a local TV crew there in Frankfurt. And they were doing a documentary on homeless people in Germany. Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. This is a personal journal. It's a bit of an experiment for me. I should say right now that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but good things usually happen when I dive into things head first. This show was founded under the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to speak directly to you, the people who enjoy whatever it is that I do without any filters whatsoever. I'm sitting here waiting for a plane in an airport in Copenhagen, Denmark, and I'm doing my best not to draw any attention, but failing miserably. Everybody's walking by staring at the guy holding a microphone. I guess I can understand that. My guest this week is Gretchen Peters. Gretchen's a wonderful singer-songwriter. Her songs have been recorded by people like George Strait, Etta James, Neil Diamond, Brian Adams, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, and a whole lot of other people. She won the Country Music Association's Song of the Year, and she was recently nominated for induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is a huge honor. You can find out everything you need to know about Gretchen at GretchenPeters.com. Gretchen was nice enough to invite me into her home to record this conversation that you're about to listen to on a very, very rainy day in Nashville. The last time I saw you, we were in the middle of a field somewhere in England, and there was a giant peacock involved, for the best I can remember. That's the peacock that ate your head. That's right. On stage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was thinking about that the other day, actually, because since I saw you there, I think I came home the next day, flew home, went to play uh, Woody Guthrie's 100th birthday in Okima, Oklahoma with Arlo. Oh, wow. And flew back to the, to, to the UK to do another round of festivals and flew back and then I went out to Colorado. I it's just yeah, it's wow. been a it's been a hell of a year. The jet lag has been kicking in. I don't even I don't even have jet lag anymore. I just float between time zones. I think it's easier not to have expectations that you're going to adjust to anything. Yeah. You know when you're doing it that when you're going back and forth that often. Yeah. Um I try just, to leave myself an extra day when I arrive to just try to sleep as much as I can. Yeah, you know, and that's a really good thing. But, you know, I always 
I always remember one of the best shows I ever did that Barry and I ever did is, uh, was because we, well, I don't know if it was because, but coincidentally or not, our flight was canceled and we lost that extra day and we literally arrived. It was in Milton Keynes, you know, just North of London. And we arrived hours before soundcheck from New York. Oh, and it was the best show we have ever done. I mean, we were just on fire. I don't know why. I think it was just you're at that point you're just running on adrenaline or yeah. something. But was the audience really good? The audience was great, but you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, there, sometimes I sometimes I sing better and am better if I'm slightly tired. Yeah. I've noticed, you know, like there's a there's it's like your filters are down and you're not watching yourself so much because you're just you're fatigued and you're tired and 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 you just kind of flow. It's just sort of easier to be in the moment when you're a little bit tired. Yeah. When you're too rested, you're, uh, you know, you're at least for me, my, my that 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 editor that's inside me that's watching me going, oh, that wasn't that that wasn't very good. Oh, you could have done that better. You know, it's like that that person is too awake or something. And, I'm glad um, I'm not the only guy that. No, 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 I have that. Yeah, I have to shut that voice up a lot. I wouldn't trust anybody who thinks they always do things well. I don't think that's a... I don't think in any artist... I mean, I think artists kind of vacillate between thinking they're awesome and thinking they suck, and, and finding middle <laughs> ground is, you know, is hard to do. Because you have to have a little bit of that... Uh, I don't know what it, it's, it's not bravado exactly, but you have to have a little bit of that. I could do that in you, you know, you have to have, have that sense of, I, th- I think I could do that. I could do that as well as that guy, you know, but you also have to have that doubt because, you know, you wouldn't be an artist if you didn't have self doubt. Yeah. Definitely. You wouldn't be a human if you didn't have self doubt. Well, I don't trust people that don't have doubt. Definitely not. They talk you into bad things. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What was uh, Okima like? Was it the 100th uh, birthday? It was Woody Guthrie's 100th birthday, and it was in this place called the Crystal Theater, which uh, is an old, old theater where Woody played at some point. Um, obvi- you know, he was born there in Okima. Um, and I've played Woody Fest before, but for the 100th birthday, it was just, it was incredible. And of course, we were opening for Arlo, which made it, extra special and um yeah it was pretty amazing it was you know I didn't realize when I was a kid I my dad was a a big um politically active he was a journalist and you know he was very involved in the civil rights movement and he was uh he taught us Woody's songs when I was little like four or five years old in the back of the car but I just thought they were you know happy fun songs to sing like you know uh let's go riding in the car you know that's you know but he also taught us like union made and a lot of the really more uh, blatant up upfront you know union organizing organizing songs and when you're five you just kind of don't think about what the words mean you just think you know union made she was a maid in a union, you know? I mean, you don't really think about what it all means. There's a line in there, goons and ginks and company finks. You know, that's like one of the lyrics. And when you're five, that's like just really fun to say. You know, you don't know what it means, really. And so going back there and playing um, the 100th birthday 
having done a, a bunch of Woody Guthrie tributes and stuff and ha- hung out with Jimmy LaFave, some which who is, you know, probably one of the best interpreters of Woody and and yeah. one of his staunchest advocates. I love um, Jimmy. Yeah, he's great. So having, you know, done all that as an adult and then going back there, it just it was really kind of emotional for me to to be playing there then. I, I just I wished my dad had known about it. I wish he was still around to know about that because I think my love of Woody's songs really started, you know, in the backseat of that car somewhere. Well, my my parents got divorced when I was eight, and my mother and I hung around. My my older siblings went off, you know, they already were off, married or in college or whatever. And my my oldest sister, the the youngest older sibling, went off to college kind of early after the divorce happened. So it was just my mom and me, and we 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 stuck it out in New York for a little while. But she she had a she had a hard time. I mean, in in a suburb like that. I mean, the the place where I grew up is where Mad Men is located. I mean, that house, that family, I was that little girl, you know. Uh, my mother dressed like that. It, it really, it's amazing. I mean, they even live in Westchester County in the in the series, you know. They live in Ossining, but same difference. Um, so, you know, when my mother got divorced in a place like that, her social life was basically over, Um you know, divorcees didn't go to dinner parties that, you know, that they went to when they were married. You know, yeah. it was just, there was a shame to it. And um, and it, there was a shame to it for me. Uh, I mean, I remember I was, I guess, in third grade and I was the only kid in my whole class that had divorced parents. Oh, which wow. is amazing when you think about it yeah. compared to now. I mean, every kid seems like, you know, at least probably half of them, you know, in well, any given well, especially Class. in Nashville, everybody's yeah. had a few, it seems True. like. <laughs> They're divorced and related, you know. But yeah, no, it was it was a real it was a stigma, you know. So she just kind of was looking for a place to go and and I think with a with an eye towards someday maybe being able to afford to send me to college, she looked at university towns. But I think she also looked at university towns because um they were cooler and hipper and she's, you know, she wanted to be, she loves young people. She wanted to be around that. And my older sister kept saying, you know, Boulder, Colorado is really supposed to be cool. It's really, you know, because she was a freak. She was a hippie. She was, she knew all about Boulder and she was kind of just trying to do a little subliminal push. I love the idea uh, of people in New York talking about how cool Boulder is. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh well, and and we got there, and you know it was it was. I didn't love it at first because, you know, I was at that point thirteen, and when you are about to turn thirteen, and when you're that age, you don't want to move. Yeah. I don't care where you live, you don't want to move. Um, so it took it took a little doing. Uh, It took some adjustment on my part. I was pretty depressed about it for a, a year and a half, two years. But once I got into high school, um, I was, it was a great place to be a teenager. And, you know, that whole scene that was going on, it was the 70s. It was amazing music scene, you know, just really we, we thought for a while it was going to become like a major music center. Everybody did because there was so much going on. But Did people tour to there? Did a lot of- people tour, I mean. Like there was a club called Tulagi, um, 
that was I could walk to from my house. And uh, the guy that owned it, Chuck Morris, used to have midnight shows for all ages. Because it was, it was just 3-2 joint. Three, three, they have 3.2 alcohol beer in Boulder. They did anyway. I don't know if they still do. And uh, so you could get in when you were 18 years old as opposed to 21. But he would have these all ages shows. And I would walk from my house at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, it was about a mile and I could get in, and the tickets were cheap, and you could get in. There was no alcohol served at the midnight show, and he had, almost every act that he booked did a midnight show, an all-ages show, and I think I saw Bonnie Raitt at least 12 times there. Oh, wow. Just Just a little place. It probably seated, I don't know, a couple hundred, 300, maybe, probably not even that. Um, I saw uh, Doc Watson there. I saw the Dirt Band. I saw... Um, Earl Scruggs and, and his his family, his boys, you yeah. know. Um, I saw Taj Mahal. I, I saw all these amazing shows. And uh, and some of that music, you know, my mom really got into it. She, some of it she took me to. I mean, she, she gave me my first concert, real concert tickets. She gave my sister, who was, I guess, 18 at the time, yeah, she would have been 18 and, and I was 13. She gave us tickets to see the Grateful Dead in Boulder at the stadium. And that was my first concert experience ever. Wow. And my sister and I went and it was, it, it's not overstating it to say that it completely blew my mind. I mean. Were there things there that kids might not need to see? Oh or? my God. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was amazing. And, you know, it really, it just really blew my mind uh my sister we've laughed about it since because my sister has no memory of getting home from that concert and i said <laughs> you know you were in charge of me you were supposed to be watching out for me but i had a i had a ball and yeah there was a lot of things that probably weren't you know my mother had no idea she had no idea but <laughs> but it was a great introduction to to music and the combination of you know shows like that um you know, everybody loved to tour in Boulder because it's such a beautiful place. I saw the Allman Brothers many, many times there. They would come every summer. Um, so I'd see those big shows and then the little ones, you know, in in places. Was it your mom that was turning you on to a lot of this roots music? Or? My mother, you know, she's she was born in 1922, but she never... She never really loved her own generation's music like she loved everything that happened from like 1968 on she she is now 90 years old and she she called me a couple years ago and she said have you heard the new ray la montaigne album it's amazing (laughs) she's 90 she was 88 at the time she's so hip and she she really like she loves what she loves and she's never been um nostalgic or interested in the music of her quote unquote her own generation she loves like one of her favorite tracks in the whole world is um whiter shade of pale procol harem she told me she wanted that played at her at her service when you know so it's like yeah i was raised by this and she enabled me too i mean she when i would sort of glom onto a a local band which i did like early on at 13 14 i there was this band that i 
just for whatever reason, they were, they were kind of a, what, what we called back then a folk rock band, you know, and I just loved them. There was something about the way they sounded that just, I was obsessed with them. She took me and they played every Sunday night locally. And she took me every single Sunday night for years to see them. She was a really great enabler of my obsession with music. And I, I know that I wouldn't be I don't know. I wouldn't be who I am. I would be something else had it not been for that enablement that she gave me. My parents sent me to a camp for day camp for gifted children when I was seven. And basically what that meant, what I came away with was I learned to play the guitar and I also learned to gamble in the back of the school bus that took us <laughs> to the camp because <laughs> all the kids were really smart and they knew stuff like how to gamble, you know. <laughs> so I learned some choice curse words and I learned how to gamble and I learned and I and I learned the guitar. So from, you know, like seven years old on, I'd been playing the guitar and, I, and I'd been singing and I sang Bob Dylan songs. And, you know, so early on, I knew I I. I kind of wanted to do that. I didn't really sort of think, oh, you could do that, like, as in do that for for a career, you know. Yeah. Um, until I had a, a boyfriend uh, in high school who said that to me, just basically said, you know, you could do that. And I thought, I could? Really? Because <laughs> I sort of pictured myself, you know, going to college and getting my art history major and working in some museum somewhere. That was what I was going to do. And then all of a sudden, the, the music thing sounded way more fun than that. <laughs> and then I kind of got, you know, on that track and and thought, I, I think maybe that's what I want to do. But oddly enough, the songwriting thing, it, it took me a long time, as dumb as it sounds, it took me a long time to realize that people wrote songs because they they sort of seemed like they were just always there to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? They had this sort of elemental I understand that completely feeling about them like Beatles songs, for instance, like, no, no, no. You're telling me that two guys sat in a room and came up with that. No, <laughs> I, that, they were just there, you know? Yeah. And it took a long time for me to put that together. And of course, you know, I was always writing things like I wrote poetry from, you know, as soon as I could write on and prose and all kinds of things, but I never put the, the whole music plus words thing together until pretty late you know until i was maybe 17 18 years old well is that what led you to uh moving to nashville well i i, I don't didn't know, i don't know how you got from boulder to to nashville i stayed in boulder you know playing in bar bands for, for really you know up till my late 20s um because there was always that tantalizing sense that boulder was going to happen yeah. And so and you want to be part of I wanted to be part of that and it was a great place to be and there is a, there is a sort of a inertia that comes over you when you live in a beautiful place like that like why would I leave you know but it just sort of started to dawn on me that that might not happen and maybe the best thing for me was to be in in a real music center and then you know a couple other things happened like right around that time um Nancy Griffith signed her record deal here. Steve Earle did. The O'Kane's records came out. Um, I just, I started hearing those records. And, and although I'd fallen in love with real kind of traditional country music, I knew that that wasn't who I was. But then I started hearing those 
artists. And I thought maybe that's where I should be, you know, that I feel like I could fit there, but I never, I never moved here with an, with a, the objective of writing songs for other people. I mean, I didn't even really know that people did that. Did you know anybody that lived in Nashville when you moved here? I had a friend who I'd been in a duo with a guy named Michael Woody, and he had moved here and brought a song that he had written when he lived in Boulder and it went and the Desert Rose Band cut, cut it and it went to number one. And I thought, well, damn, you know, if he can do <laughs> if he can do that, I could do that. So, yeah. So I slept on his couch a couple of times and made a couple preliminary trips and and uh, you know stayed with him. And and I got um, I got in to see uh, Tony Brown, who was just not running MCA Records, but he was you know just working at RCA and he was an A&R guy and. I got in to see um, Barry Beckett, who I just loved. When and you say got into, does this mean you just showed up and uh, asked to meet these people, or were you introduced from other people? I or? had some friends who who, intro- who said you might want to. Can you give half an hour to this girl? You know that kind that kind of thing. And it was you know it was a little easier then than it is now. I think to and these people you know weren't who they became either. They were they were lower down the ladder at that point. Um, did it feel like there was a, an obvious career path to a person that just moved to Nashville to, I guess, since you had a friend who was doing well, maybe things did seem really possible and it seemed possible, but I've also had, I've also always all my life been gifted with a really good set of blinders. You know, I, I have this ability, which has really come in awfully handy to not pay attention to um, the possibility that something couldn't happen, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I mean, I just, I just put my blinders on and I go forward, you know, yeah. and I just, I just, it's just the way I'm built, you know. Um, but yeah, it seemed possible. And I got encouragement, um, but everybody said, you got to move here, you got to move here, you got to move here. You can't do this from Colorado. So then did you, know. you find I was told that so many times and um after living here for a while it's been 5 years now I sometimes think that no one would it was simply no one was going to take me seriously until I took the step of leaving my hometown and coming to Nashville I think that's a big part of there it There was a little bit of a filter why should we take you seriously when you don't take yourself seriously enough to move here Right and there's you know there is sort of that Hey, you know, the next guy in line lives here and, you know, he, you know, there is that sense of, um, you know, it's like Harlan Howard told me once, he said, you know, if you ever get like feeling like, you know, you're being treated unfairly or whatever, he said, just remember, nobody sent you an invitation, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and he's right. You know, you, 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 you want to play, you get in the pool, you know, that kind of Thing. But um, but it did seem possible, and I got enough encouragement um, that I moved. And and ultimately, Tony Brown is the guy that that uh, he called a friend of his, by the guy by the name of Noel Fox, who used to be in the Oak Ridge Boys, was the bass singer for the Oak Ridge Boys, and then and at that point ran their publishing company. He'd retired from singing, and Noel just heard something in me and this is a talent that I will never completely understand a great music publisher or record guy 
and there aren't that many of them anymore. But they, they will just hear what you're going to do, not what you've done, because I hadn't done anything. You know, not one of those songs I brought to town ever saw the light of day, and I wouldn't play them for anybody now. So it wasn't what I had already done, but he just heard what I was going to do. And that's, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. And, and Noel heard something, and he just flat out told me, if you move to town, I'll give you a publishing deal. Oh, wow. And that was all I needed. Yeah, that's beautiful. I didn't even really know what a publishing deal was, <laughs> but I knew it was a good thing. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It meant that, it, and what it meant was, and, and I, I had a little bout with a sort of creative paralysis after I got here, and I, and I realized it meant that they were going to pay me money, not very much, but some, to write songs. And that was like, that was paralyzing because you, okay, you better do it now. You know, I mean, it's not, and I, I, I did flounder for a little while because of the pressure of that. And just because I felt like I was supposed to be delivering, you know, stuff that would go on the radio. And, and, and I tried to imitate everything I was hearing and the Judds were really big at the time. And I was like, here's a song that sounds just like the Judds, you know, and of course, none of that stuff nothing ever happened with any of it. And then I, I just sort of out of frustration and on the side started writing things that I wanted to write. And those were the ones that everybody liked. And in the end, those were the ones that got recorded. And finally, and I, I tried so hard to co-write. I tried, you know, I had some disastrous co-writing, really disastrous co-writing episodes. And finally, Noel took me aside and he said, you know, I love to have 100% of the copyright. So I don't need you to be doing this. And besides which, the songs you write all by yourself, they're so much better. And, and you don't need to keep showing up here at the, at the office. You don't need to do, you know, it's not a job like that. Just go, if, if, if getting in the car and driving somewhere is what makes you stimulated to write, then do that. And he kind of let me off the hook. And That was a pretty uncommon thing for that time period, wasn't it? It was, it was really uncommon. For a person to simply write by themselves. and Oh, co-write. Everybody wanted <laughs> everybody to co-write with everybody. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I, I sometimes, I just, I count my blessings that, that I fell into his lap, into his company, um, because he was a really wise and great music publisher and he, he did what a really great music publisher ought to do or a, forget music publisher, just a mentor of an artist. Um, he saw where the places where I was struggling and helped me, but didn't tell me what to do ever. You know, it was, did you have an obvious, um, work ethic at the time? Cause it seems like that would be he would have to rely upon you to actually do the work. To, if, I, I've never, yeah, and I, I think he, I'm sure he must have recognized that because I've, I've, I've never had a, I mean, I'm not a slacker. You know, I, I work hard. I've always worked hard. I like to work hard. I feel, I feel at, at, at sea if I'm not working on something. So, and I think, he, I'm sure he must have seen that, but I think he also saw that, that what I did creatively when I was by myself was just so much more interesting and better. And, and he had more success with it too. That says a lot for him to be able to. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so grateful that, uh, you know, that he was my, 
first publisher. So were you able to move to Nashville and uh, through this transition period of just being here, did you have to get day jobs and things like that? Or were you able to just write all day? Or? Well, I got the publishing deal almost right, like within three months. I mean, I, it, it kicked in within three months of moving here. I had a young child, so, you know, uh, we were running up the visa and um, we'd saved up a little money for the move. But we, we were, you know, <laughs> we had a really crappy car and one of my first memories of moving here was or it was a pinto i think it was a pinto it was a ford and at any rate and one of my first memories is the damn ford dying right in that intersection of broadway and and 14th like right where you're you know <laughs> the busiest intersection yeah. as you're turning right to go up to music row and we there we are pushing the thing through that intersection to try and get it you know, off the road. And I'm thinking, I hope that we can look back on this someday. And, <laughs> and you know, from some, you know, awards banquet, tell the story, because this really sucks right now. <laughs> but, you know, um, but we made it and I, I took a few little, I took a few little temp jobs. Like I, I, um, I secretary, I substitute secretary for, uh, for a guy who later later on was my was the CFO of my first record label, as it turns out, um, and I would do things because I I have pretty good um, left brain capabilities too. I'm pretty organized. I did I would do things like even at my own publishing company for extra money, I would um, type lyric sheets and I would file and do like secretarials kind of stuff. And I turn when I would turn my own lyric sheets and my own songs into the to the secretary there at one, at one point she pulled me aside and she said, are you sure you're a songwriter? <laughs> because the lyrics were so, you know, nicely printed out and, you know, it was so organized and she just wasn't used to that. But is that something you get from your dad? I don't know where I, yeah, he was pretty, he was pretty much that he was very organized as a writer. So mm -hmm. that's possible. I've never really thought about where I get it. I'm just, did he teach you to type at a young age or was that in high school? I college? learned in high school, but you know, that's the soundtrack. There's two sounds that I remember from my childhood over any other sounds. And one of them is the sound of typing because my dad freelanced a lot and he would work at home in his office and, all day you would hear typing. He was very disciplined. You know, he was in his in his office for eight hours. So at the sound of typing was one sound, and the other sound is the sound of bourbon in a glass with ice. And that was what <laughs> that was the sound at night at my house, my parents. And those those two sounds maybe mixed with some um, Ella Fitzgerald and Django Reinhardt records. That's pretty much the soundtrack to my childhood. Yeah, we we were at my mother's 90th birthday party actually, and we started to smell the smoke. I had flown in from Kerrville Folk Festival that morning, and we landed at Denver Airport, and we saw just a really small kind of plume of smoke up north, off in the distance. And by the time we got to Boulder, it was huge. I mean, it's amazing and scary how fast those things blow up. I mean, I lived there 17 years uh, in the 70s and 80s, and and I don't remember any big fires close to us or any of that, you know, I mean, we'd never, that was not something we even 
thought much about. I mean, you you know, you didn't throw your cigarette out the car window in the mountains, but um, I've never seen it like it like it was this summer. It's scary. It seems to be happening in a lot of places with more frequency. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that you know, the whole the whole climate of that area has changed radically. Um, I mean, it's we used to have these Chinook winds in the wintertime that would, you know, it, it would be like 28 degrees outside and a Chinook wind would come and an hour later, literally, it'd be 65, you know, they, they were, they were warm, you know, and, and you go to, you go there now and anybody that hasn't been there for a really long time has no idea what you're talking about. They've never experienced them. So. I don't know what a Chinook wind is. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, an old timers in Colorado will tell you. What's the Chinook part? Does it come from Canada or Chinook is? A, no. I know it's a fish. I don't. Chinook know. Chinook is an Indian word. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure which. It's an Amer- it's a Native American word. I'm not sure, um, but it means warm wind. I okay. think I'm pretty sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I didn't know. New Yorkers sometimes think that you're saying Chinook wind, but Chinook is a totally different thing from a Chinook. Okay. A Chinook is. Yeah. You don't want to be a Chinook. So I'm a fisherman. And a Chinook is a salmon. That's right. But same, I don't know. It's the same derivation, though. Okay. It's, it's a Native American word. Yeah. They fill books with things I don't know about. Yeah, I, yeah tell me about it. Yeah. Thank you very much for uh, chatting with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. Just in time, a train whistle. like to thank everybody for listening in and i'd like to thank gretchen for being nice enough to invite me into her home in nashville tennessee and if you'd like to find out more about her just go to gretchenpeters.com if you'd like to help support this show just go to otisgibbs.com and i uh, get you a cd t-shirt you can download any album i've made you could buy one of my photographs pick up amy's album while you're there anything that you get we'll mail from our living room to yours We'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and uh, leave us a five-star review. Leave a little comment on there. Tell us which episode you like the best. Tell them uh, you like my beard, whatever. But uh, it helps us move up in the search rankings and helps a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, Please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.